0: Good day. Today is march thirteenth, twenty twenty three, and this is Democracy Appalled. I'm your host, Rohan Mova. We are talking about democracy and its impact on the world. This show is all about democracy. This is Democracy Appalled. We are live from 1490 WWPRM every Monday at 5 AM Eastern. If you have any questions about democracy, send us an email at democracyappalled at gmail.com and we'll bring that topic in our next week's session. Remember, that email is democracyappalled at gmo.com. Please feel free to email us about anything. In today's episode, we'll go through point number three in our six points of understanding democracy. Point number three is the current state of democracy in the United States. So that goes into political polarization. So we'll discuss the growing divide between political parties in the United States, including the impact of gerrymandering, media echo chambers, and the influence of money in politics. And then we'll go into Things like the campaign financing and the influence of special interest groups in shaping political decisions, along with challenges posed by new technologies such as social media, big tech, big big data, and how those other technologies are changing the political landscape and impacting uh, misinformation and cyber attacks on elections. So this will be some really interesting stuff that we'll get into today. And then after that, we'll go into Iran's democracy's history, along with that, the Granada Revolution. And then current affairs with India and a shocking surprise that you'll have to wait to find out about. Trust me, it's worth it. It's really exciting. And hopefully we can get through all this today. But if not, we'll be right back here next Monday at 5 a.m. Eastern. All right, let's get into it. But first, let's, let's recap of the past episodes in our understanding of democracy. So the first point was the history of democracy. And that's where we discussed ancient origin. So the development of democratic ideas in ancient Greece including the concept of citizenship, representation, and direct democracy. Then we went in to discuss modern democratic systems. So it's discussing the development of parliamentary systems in Europe, the spread of democratic ideals during enlightenment, and the impact of the American Revolution on the creation of modern democratic nations. And then we went into the spread of democracy. So that included the growth of democratic movements in the 20th century, the impact and the fall of the Soviet Union, and the current state of democracy in different regions around the world. So that was our understanding of point number one, the history of democracy. Then we went into point number two, the role of democracy in modern society. So that included the impact on economic development. So how has democracy contributed to economic growth and stability in the examples of countries like South Korea and Taiwan? And that was a really interesting episode. And then we went into uh, things like how democracy has helped to protect and promote human rights, including our God-given freedoms of speech, religion and assembly. And then are other things like economic inequality and going into examples with countries of social welfare systems like Scandinavia. And then the next point, point four, five, and 6, are as follows. The current state of democracy globally, the future of democracy, and the relationship between democracy and the media. So it'll be a really interesting episode this episode and our future episodes as well. So let's get right into it. When we talk about the current state of democracy in the United States, let's go through a brief overview. So the current state of democracy in the United States, is characterized by political polarization, the influence of money in politics, and the challenges posed by new technologies. And these factors, they've contributed to a growing divide between political parties and have led to a range of challenges for American democracy. Political polarization in the United States, it's, it's been on the rise for several decades now. This isn't something that just randomly showed up or it hasn't been going on for a while. This has been going on. And this is something that President Washington, we talked about this in the last episode, but it's important. This is something that President Washington warned us about, political factions that will divide this country. And in recent years, the divide between political parties, it's grown increasingly sharp. With Democrats and Republicans deeply divided on issues ranging from healthcare to immigration to everything that you can think of. The polarization, it's been fueled by a number of factors, including gerrymandering, media echo chambers, and the influence of money in politics. I believe that the media plays a big role in this, because when you look at national polarization versus local and state polarization, it's much more. When you look at, for example, the Georgia General Assembly, Georgia is where I'm from, it's my home state. And when you look at the Georgia General Assembly, they've passed almost everything this legislative session, Uh, barring just a few things and a few nays, they've passed almost everything and almost everything with almost full support. You know, there have been a couple bills where you got a couple like three, two, one, but not many where you have more than 10 nays. And it's rarely been split along pure partisan lines. And that's not something you see often in state legislatures. You think of Georgia now in recent years as more of a swing state, especially. But this isn't something that's translating to the Georgia General Assembly when they're voting. And that's not something that we're seeing as much in the state legislatures when it comes to partisan politics, because partisan politics it's being exemplified by national media. And that's causing when you go to the United States Congress, United States House representatives, and you see this is split along party lines, that is split along party lines, everything is split along party lines. It's crazy to see that that is happening within the national sphere. But it's not always the case, and especially not the case when it comes to state and local legislatures. And it doesn't happen all the time. And I think that's an embodiment of the media polarization and the the coverage that that is getting. And the media plays a big role in this, and we'll definitely get into that later today. But moving on, when it goes into gerrymandering, that's something that we talked about very, very briefly I mentioned. So gerrymandering, it's a practice of redrawing district boundaries to favor one political party. And it's played a significant role in exacerbating the political polarization in the United States. So by creating safe seats for politicians gerrymandering has reduced the number of competitive elections and made it easier for politicians to cater to their base rather than them seeking to build consensus across party lines. So not only has gerrymandering has it has it taken away our democratic process but it's also increased polarization. So gerrymandering is such a lose-lose situation here. And we'll get into gerrymandering a little bit more in this in this episode but I I gerrymandering it's something that's difficult to fix fully but it's also something really important to address. M- Another thing media echo chambers. So media echo chambers they've con- contributed to political polarization in the United States, right? So with the rise of cable news and social media, Americans have increasingly turned to sources of information that reinforce their existing beliefs and values. This has made it harder for people to engage in constructive dialogue across party lines and it's contributed To the growth of tribalism really in American politics. The influence of money in politics is another major factor contributing to political polarization in the United States. With the Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United decision, it's a really crucial decision that has influenced politics more greatly than any other Supreme Court decision. I truly believe that. Corporations and other interest groups were granted the ability to spend unlimited amounts of money to influence political campaigns. This has led to an explosion and a real explosion truly in political spending with candidates and political action committees raising billions of dollars each election cycle. As a result, politicians are increasingly reliant on large donors to fund their campaigns and many beholden to the interests of the donors in office. And this is something you see time and time again. If you don't have the money, you don't have the support. And this goes back to the special interests, the political action committees. And these guys, they don't have loyalty all the time to the people. Their loyalty is to the interests that have funded them to get in office. And they're gonna fund them to stay in office. And that'll fund them to make sure that they don't have a primary opponent, that they're, they're gonna have a difficult time taking out. Along with that, there are challenges posed by new technologies. So the new technologies, they're shaping political landscape in the United States. So that includes social media, big data, and other technologies. They've made it easier for political campaigns to target voters with personalized messaging and to micro-target specific demographics. However, these technologies have also made it easier for bad actors to spread misinformation and propaganda. And this can undermine the integrity of elections and erode public trust in the democratic process. So we've talked about this in previous episodes, but how important is public trust in the democratic process? Public trust is the sole, one of the most important things when it comes to a stable democracy. Without public trust in the democracy, there is no democracy. You don't have voter turnout. You don't have politically engaged people. And without that, you have no democracy because democracy, it relies on the people and it relies on everybody engaging with our our government and our future. And without that, you don't have a strong democratic process. And without public trust, that's eroding currently very fastly, we don't have a stable democracy. Additionally, there's cyber attacks. So that's been brought up recently many, many times. So cyber attacks on election systems have become a growing concern with foreign governments and other malicious actors seeking to interfere in American elections. And this isn't just happening in America. And we'll go into this a little bit later on when we when we go into their current affairs. This is a special case study. I want to go. This is part of the surprise. But there is a cyber attack on election that happened in twenty twenty one that we'll go into. So the current state of democracy in the United States, it's characterized by political polarization. There's the influence of money in politics. And then there's the challenges posed by new technologies. And these factors have contributed to a range of challenges for American democracy. So that includes a growing divide between political parties. The, the erosion of public trust in government, and the threat of foreign interference in elections. So addressing these challenges, it'll require concentrated effort from all segments of society, including political leaders, media organizations, and individual citizens. And I think the key important part here, they're all important, political leaders, media organizations, but I think the most important key thing is the people, the individual citizens. But it should be noted that the political leaders and media organizations are, are very, very, very important as well. And when it comes to leadership in a democratic process, that is so crucial. That is so crucial. And we saw this in Mexico and in Israel through our previous case studies where the political leaders, they are corrupt and they're not taking a democratic process to, the, to its real core. And that's when you have issues where political leaders aren't faithful to the democratic process. So let's get further into political polarization. So political polarization in its core refers to the growing divide of political parties and their supporters And in the United States, in our example. So this divide has been increasing in recent years, and it's made it much harder for people to engage in constructive dialogue across party lines. It's been fueled by a range of factors, and one of those is gerrymandering, and one of those is the media, and one of those is the money, right? But some view political polarization it's it's a lack of shared values and principles among people and that may be the case but it's also it could be a symptom of a larger cultural divide but that may not be the case and i really don't think that it it's a larger cultural divide i think it's just the problem that we don't have conversations we don't have conversations where we can just talk and it's difficult when you when you have a democracy you need to be able to engage in constructive dialogue You need to be able to argue one side versus another with evidence. You need to be able to push competition, consensus, and informed thinking. And can those three be put together? It's something to think about. It really is. Because you have competition. Competition on one hand, it it says that there are many different ideas and they'll compete against each other. Maybe one will come to the front. Maybe they'll mix together and they'll come to the front. But there is one basic idea that should come to the front. And that's the idea of competition. When you have competition in in an industry, for example, they're always competing for the best product. They're always trying to make each other better. And that's what competition with ideas does as well. It always pushes one idea to the front. Many times it does at least, and that's the idea of the marketplace of ideas. But the problem is that can also push towards group polarization. And when you're talking about group polarization when it comes to competition, that can just spread more and more people to the opposite side and just get more and more entrenched in their view that it makes it difficult for there to be any middle ground. Another idea is the idea that there should be consensus building when it comes to conversations. So what is the goal of conversations? Could it be in consensus? It could be consensus. That is one possible option, but consensus doesn't always have to be reached. It doesn't always have to be reached to have productive dialogue. Consensus could include compromises and compromises. Who knows that better than Henry Clay, Henry Clay, the great American compromiser and consensus is one way. And there's the other idea that you just have conversations to get informed. You know, if I'm if I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat and we're arguing completely different sides, maybe it's just to get informed. I want to hear your perspective and you want to hear my perspective. That may just be the thing. But you could always have a mixture of all these three different ideas when it comes to competition, consensus and just being informed. So you can be you can have competing ideas that can lead to a consensus because these ideas they come together and maybe one idea comes and then there's a consensus that includes compromises and then in the process obviously you get informed when you put evidence together and all that sort of information but in the academic sphere this idea of competition versus consensus versus informed thinking and when it comes to deliberation and online deliberation spaces it's a really important th- topic and something to think about deeply so let's go into this deeper so when it, when we go into the causes of political polarization we touched on gerrymandering right we know what gerrymandering is and it's reduced the number of competitive elections and made it easier for politicians to cater to their base rather than seeking to build consensus across party lines so what are media echo chambers they're created when people seek out information that reinforces their existing beliefs and values and they've also contributed to political polarization so when you think about tv talk shows you may think of Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity. You may think of um, Don Lemon. You may think of Wolf Blitzer. You know, I'm not sure if Wolf Blitzer is, is, is in that same category. I don't watch his show, nor do I watch many other shows, but there, there, there are these different talk shows that, that perpetuate the same exact thinking that, you know, there's this one right ideology and they keep pushing it. They keep pushing it. They keep pushing it. And they don't bring on the other sides, and that's a problem, you know, on both sides of the aisle. Whether it be with Fox News push, coming more and more and more towards the right, and then you have CNN, MSNBC going more and more and more towards the left, and it's a it's a problem. And I just named the big ones right off the top of my head, but there are many, many more players in this game than just those two. That's just those couple major media players. But when it comes to media echo chambers, they're reinforcing the same thought process that. You're right. You know, there is no other ideology there. It's, it's just reinforcing the same exact ideals. And that is what has contributed to political polarization in its core, really. And especially in the recent age, when it comes to new technologies, only emphasizing these divides, not emphasizing what brings us together. And when it comes to the influence of money in politics, it's, it's made it harder for politicians to work together on issues that are most important to their constituents. So when I bring up, you know, in the Georgia General Assembly, they, they, cross, they reach across party lines many, many, many times, right? But that we don't see that happen as much in, in the national sphere. And why is that? A key piece of that could be because of, you know, this, the money that's funded into national elections rather than state elections, where there isn't that much outside interest. While, while there is, it may not be to the degree that there is when it comes to, you know, the United States Congress versus the Georgia General Assembly. So the influence of money in politics, it's made it harder, much harder for politicians to work on issues that are important to their constituents because the special interests are at play and we can't ignore that. So another thing is that a, a solution to political polarization may not be, you know, this is this is. Like I said, it's hard to eliminate gerrymandering altogether. And what is the best idea to solve it to the best possible ability? And the best idea might be the solution to political polarization may not be to eliminate gerrymandering, but to encourage more moderate and consensus building candidates so that gerrymandering isn't happening to the the degree which it's happening now. I mean, I don't think it should happen at all, but you can't always eliminate it and things get difficult. When you go to the consequences of political polarization, the consequences of political polarization are significant, extremely significant. They include decreased civility and dialogue across party lines. And what does that lead to? That leads to a gridlock in government. And then what does that lead to? That leads to a threat in the legitimacy, the legitimacy, the core of democratic institutions. Then we go into the idea that there are ideological differences between party lines. You know, it may not be just because it's there's a, there's a decrease in dialogue. You know, it's it, there may be core ideological differences that mean that it's necessary to check on the government power and a gridlock prevents one party from imposing its will on the rest of the country. And that may be the case that, you know, a gridlock may stop rule over, you know, the the Democrats having full control and so on. You know, we're seeing that in the House of Representatives right now. But the idea is that, when there are ideological differences between parties, you know, there should still be a degree of civility and a degree of dialogue across party lines It shouldn't lead to a gridlocking government, it shouldn't lead to the president vetoing everything, or the governor, or whatever it may be, it shouldn't lead to the house not passing so and so it should lead to dialogue where one side is able to get something, another side is able to get something, and we're able to progress forward, not sit there and take 15 steps back because not, not because we're going backwards, but because we're staying in the same spot. And when we're staying in the same spot, everybody's pushing forward. And when we're not pushing forward, we're going backwards. So that is the key problem I see here. And then let's go into the possible solutions to political polarization. There are, there are tons of, there are tons of ideas. Will they work? We don't know. We don't know. They're difficult to implement. That's for sure. So possible solutions to political polarization, they could include redistricting, to redistricting reform. So that could be to reduce gerrymandering. And then there could be media literacy efforts to counter misinformation and then those echo chambers that we talked about. And then there's the idea of promoting more moderate, more consensus voting candidates and policies. This is something I see that we're lacking and that I, I, I would love to see more moderate and more consensus voting candidates. Not only does that increase the amount of civility and dialogue that we'll have across party lines, but it also means that we as a society will come together greater because these candidates, while Americans do have staunch beliefs on one side of the aisle on many issues, they do cross along along party lines many many times. Whether it comes to national security, immigration, abortion, and so on, they don't always just stay on one side. Whether it be Republicans or Democrats, Americans really do favor one party over another for when it comes to certain issues. So that is conservative ideology versus liberal ideology. So for when it comes to national security most americans support republicans they're about 60% and the same thing comes to immigration then when it comes to abortion more more americans support democrats so it's the idea that when you have more moderate consensus building candidates you can go to what the people want you're able to build more compromises and you're able to get things done what the american people want rather than you know just going across one ideology that that doesn't build for the american people and doesn't take us anywhere because we go into a gridlock You know, one ideology, it may be fine, but as long as we're progressing forward, it should be forward, not not we have four years of President Biden and he's able to pass some laws with a Democratic Congress. And then four years later, you get a Republican president who takes back everything that President Biden just did. And we continue to go back because it's the wrong method, because there's such a stark difference in ideology. And I don't believe that should be the case, because that's what's happening right now. We had four years of President Trump. He did, he did trade deals, he did so on, and President Biden tried to reverse everything he did for the first two years. And then I'm sure the Republican president will do that for the next, for when he get, whenever he gets in office trying to reverse everything President Biden did, and so on. So it's a very difficult idea to, to promote to when you don't have moderate and consensus voting candidates, because I believe that's the, that's the next step and a necessary step to get more efficient policymaking done, and to reduce political polarization. So, focusing on shared values and principles, it's essential to achieving meaningful policy outcomes. Not to ignore our differences, but rather to build on our differences to get success done, successful policy achieved. So, let's go into polarization in the media. So, polarization in the media, it refers to the increasing divide between different news sources and the way they cover political issues. And this has contributed to the growth of media echo chambers and a lack of trust. You know, at the core, there's a lack of trust in the media. And then when we go into the causes of polarization in the media, so that includes the rise of cable news and social media, because this is the age of technology. And we've heard this too, so many times, right? But there have been, there's more information that we see today than ever before. We don't just pick up a newspaper and read it. And we see the headlines. We read a couple of articles. There's everything that we need to know comes in a one sentence uh, line on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter and the economic pressures on traditional news outlets, they've led to a focus on sensationalism and clickbait. And that's part of the, the, the culture today, especially when it comes to the younger generation Gen Z, as they call it, and it, it's becoming a major cause of polarization within the media, causing it to polarize into the society. And that that is a key problem that is threatening the legitimacy of our democratic institution. And then when we go into the consequences of polarization in the media, so it includes a lack of common ground and a shared understanding among Americans. If you listen to MSNBC, you'll take away one understanding. But if you listen to Fox News, you'll take away another understanding. If you listen to NPR, you'll take away a different understanding. What is the understanding that is supposed to be achieved? You know, the spread of of misinformation, conspiracy theories, they're, they're playing a threat in the role of the media as the fourth estate. The media is called the fourth estate because they play a crucial role in not only disseminating information to the American people, but they also are supposed to check on the big dogs. They're supposed to check on the government, the people that they're supposed to hold accountable for their actions. And it, the threat of the role uh, the media in holding elected officials accountable is just not happening when you have such staunch polarization in media. If you have a story on President Trump, Fox News may may squash it much much lower than CNN may be broadcasting out on all their platforms and for the next week. Versus you know same with MSNBC versus Fox News that may squash it and try to find something else as news. So this is not what the media was intended for as the fourth estate. So when you think of possible solutions for polarization in the media, I mean, we talked briefly about media literacy and increased funding for public media outlets and increased transparency and accountability for news organizations. Those are all things that we can try. But again, these are private entities for the most part. You have NPR, which is a public public outlet. And there are uh, things to increase funding for public outlets. they have fundraising drives, and so on and there have also been issues with if you increase funding under a democratic government versus a republican government does that does that sway the partisanship of you know a, a media source like NPR leaning a little bit towards the right, leading a little bit towards the left you know depending on the Congress and so on but Increase a, a transparency and accountability for news organizations, that's something to talk about as well. How would that happen? And so on. That, that would be an interesting topic to think about. So now let's go on to the influence of money in politics. So the influence of money in politics, it refers to the role of campaign financing and the influence of special interest groups in shaping political decisions. This influence has increased in recent years due to the Supreme Court decisions on campaign finance, especially including Citizens United. So the idea of the money, the influence of money in politics, some say it's a necessary aspect of free speech and political expression, right? So individuals and corporations should have the right to support candidates and policies that align with their values and principles. But to what degree do they they alienate the core base of the American people, the 99% of American people, right? And then you go into the influence of money, what is it caused by? So it's caused by a range of factors, including the role of You know, PACs, you know, political action committees, the impact of wealthy donors on political campaigns and policy decisions, because now that you have big corporations, big individuals donating to these major campaigns, they have a say in the policy. They're basically the politicians at this point, and they have the ability to, with other interest groups, to spend these unlimited amounts of money to influence political campaigns. What does influencing political campaigns do? Influences policy decisions. What does influencing policy decisions do? Impacts the economy, impacts the people, and so on. So some say it's a way for individuals and groups to express their political views and to support candidates that align with their values. But then uh, the others may argue that, you know, the restrictions, they would limit political expression and stifle free speech. You know, to a degree that may be true, it really may be. But then to another degree, what, what, to what degree is it stifling free speech by having one person have so much more power in a democratic institution rather than another person uh, down here in Georgia, right? You know, just a regular old Joe in Georgia just trying to have his voice heard as well, right? But the idea is that in a democratic institution, one person, one vote, one voice. But when you have such great influence of money in politics, that one person, that one voice, it could be exacerbated by so much more. It could be emphasized more than another person's one voice, one vote, right? And is that, the, is that the key goal of a democratic institution? In my opinion, I don't believe so, but that's a question you have to ask yourself. And when you think about the consequences of the influence of money in politics, they, they include an erosion of trust in government, right, and democratic institutions, decreased representation of average citizens in politi- in the political process, and an increased influence of special interests and policy decisions, right? So that it really affects the economy as a whole, the people as a whole, and everything that there aren't all the perspectives being taken into account like they should be. And when it comes to a democracy, it's important that, that those ideas are all taken into account and that perspectives aren't mismanaged because of the influence of money, which I believe to be dangerous to a great degree. So possible solutions to the influence of money in politics, they could include public financing of political campaigns, restrictions on political action committee spending, and increased transparency and disclosure requirements for political spending. And one thing I would like to note is that many of these politicians, they they like to emphasize grassroots movement. We're a grassroots movement. Our money comes from grassroots. I'm not taking money from super PACs. I'm not taking money from so-and-so, these large corporations and whatnot. But it's important to remember that even though they may come from you know grassroots movement it this shows that the american people don't want special interests controlling the politics the american people don't want big packs controlling politics and so on they want one voice one vote one person right and they they want an equal voice across the playing field and so that's what that's what it shows and that that is something that congress has to take into effect and that's something that really needs to be thought about And how do we solve this? How do we make sure that, you know, no one is getting an unfair playing field and to make sure that we have a democracy where we have institutionalized equality, right? And equality could mean equality of the voice when it comes to money, right? The, sor- the, uh, the source of all our, they say the source of all our problems, money, right? One voice, one vote, one person. I think that should be the key that we should always remember. This is your host, Rohan Mova, and if you're just tuning in, we're talking about democracy and its impact on the world. This show is all about democracy. This is Democracy Appalled. If you have any questions about democracy, send us an email at democracyappalled at gmo.com, and we'll bring that topic in our next week's session. Remember, that email is democracyappalled at gmo.com. Let's go into our next thing. Challenges posed by new technologies. So, I mean, this is a key part in polarization as well, right? So when I talk about challenges posed by new technologies, I'm referring to the impact of social media, big data, and other technologies on the political landscape of the United States. These technologies, they've made it easier for political campaigns to target voters with personalized messaging. But they've also increased the increased threat of cyber attacks on election systems and the spread of misinformation and propaganda. So some may view the impact of social media and big data on politics as an important aspect of free speech and political expression, right? People should have the ability to use the tools to express the political views and support and support candidates that align with their values. Other may say, you know, there's, this is a spread of misinformation and the spread of propaganda that is taking over, you know, our brains, our airwaves and so on. And it's dangerous. And to a degree, they're both right, really. They're both right. There is misinformation and propaganda that is scary. That is going to increase polarization and increase uh, the amount of distrust in government and so on. But then there's also the idea that there, there is free speech and political expression, and it is important that when you have social media and people are using it, that, that it is an important aspect of free speech and political expression. And there should be no limits on that of free speech and free expression. So they're both thought processes that both I agree with. So when it comes to the causes of the challenges posed by new technologies, the challenges they're, they're caused by an impact, the impact of social media, political communication and discourse, the role of big data in political campaigns and micro targeting of voters and the threat of cyber attacks on the election systems and interference by foreign government. And we heard this before, you know, in 2016, you know, the possibility of Russia and interfering with our election. So some may say that big data and political campaigns and micro-targeting of voters, it's a better way to understand the needs and perspectives of different communities, right? So some may say that this information, it can be used to develop more targeted targeted and effective policies. Others may say, whoa, 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 hold your brakes right there. That is some real, real privacy concerns. You're taking my data? This is, this is right now, everything on my phone, it's, it's mine. Right. It, it has everything that you need to know about me because we spend our time, a lot of it on our phone, a lot of the things we do, a lot of the things that go through us, a lot of our thoughts, they're on our phone. They are. Right. So if you have data on my phone, on my accounts, you have data about me, about my person, who I am. And it's a real privacy concern. Right. So sure, they may be able to understand the needs and perspectives of different communities. But at what cost? At what cost? Is my privacy your cost? something to think about. And then when you think about the consequences of the challenges posed by these new technologies, so they include the spread of misinformation and propaganda, right? Decreased privacy and data security for individuals, right? We cannot highlight that enough. Privacy and data security. I've said this in a previous episode, but this is the age of privacy. When you have these AI devices that listen to everything that you tell them, Right. When you have things like Alexa, the Google Home and so on, they listen to everything you tell them and or don't tell them. Right. They they could be listening on your conversations. This is the age of privacy. You've got these video cameras that are synced to this cloud and this cloud based software that has all your data. And then are they selling the data? You don't know. Are they selling whatever you search up uh, towards uh, targeted ads? You don't know. They could be. And it's scary to a degree, it really is. So the data security and privacy—this will be our age of privacy, especially when it comes to AI technology and how that'll advance over the next couple of decades. So the cyber attacks—they've also been a threat to the integrity of democracy, democratic institutions, and election outcomes, because not only has social media played a big role in democratic institutions, but they've played a big role in election outcomes because. Everything you you look at the amount of uh, people that get their news from Facebook or Instagram, and it, it's large. You know, I remember seeing a statistic. I don't remember the exact number, but it was a large percent, double digits for sure, at least thirty percent, I believe. And the idea to improve cybersecurity is is important to protect democratic institutions. So uh, possible solutions could also be you know increased regulation of social media and big data and those have its drawbacks, but they also have its pros, right? So if you increase the regulation of social media and big data, are you getting too much into you know, the people's free expression, uh, companies and so on? But then you need to protect privacy. And if you're not protecting privacy, you're not protecting the American people, period. So that's really important, I believe, privacy. And then there's the idea of improved cybersecurity for election systems and campaigns, like I've said. And that's, that's, that's another key piece that, that will be worked on definitely. I truly believe, they'll they should get something done within the next couple of decades for sure, hopefully within the next couple of years. Uh, there's the idea of improved media literacy, which could help with misinformation and propaganda as well. So furthermore, there's the idea that, you know, these tools, they should be without interference, without censorship. Because this is another idea of free speech, political expression, which should not be threatened to any degree, which I agree with to a strong, strong degree. The free speech and political expression, they're key in democratic institutions. And if this is the way that people are going to express themselves, you know, as long as they're keeping politically engaged, as long as all the perspectives are being shown, it could be a benefit. And it really could be. And when we go into democratic challenges, that's what we've discussed thus far in our current state of democracy in in America, you know, the United States. It isn't all negative, though. There are many positives that has happened in our evolution of democracy and our current state of democracy in the United States. And we'll go through this right after this. This is your host, Rohan Movin. If you're tuning in, we're talking about democracy and its impact on the world. This show is all about democracy. This is Democracy appalled. If you have any questions about democracy, send us an email at democracyappalled at gmo.com and we'll bring that topic in our next week's session. Remember that email is democracyappalled at gmo.com. All right, let's go into the pros. So, increased political engagement. So in recent years, there's been a significant increase in political engagement and activism among Americans. This has been spurred by a range of factors, including the elections of, uh, of President Trump, concerns about social and economic inequality and the impact of new technologies on political organiza- organizing. So I think the, the last one and the first one, they interconnected to a, to a great degree. So when you look at the impact of new technologies on political organizations and mobilizing people to do certain things, it's really important because these, these social medias and the uh, online forums and all this sort of stuff. People are able to access this information like never before. And when it comes to the election of President Trump, these, these quotes that, that have been shown in the media, everything that has been there, it was a highly politicized, highly publicized election than ever before because of all these new technologies that have impacted uh, our, our society. And then they've also led to more and more people wanting to get involved because they're reading more. More and more people are getting informed, right? So more and more people are getting engaged only natural, right? So then there's also the idea that when you have um, these great tools like social media to organize movements, organize protests, and so on, it's, it's a great tool to increase political engagement, which has grown significantly because of these new technologies. So it's not all negative when it comes to these technologies. It really isn't. And I'm sure if the founding fathers had this, they would have been super excited. Because what was one of their key problems? they had to communicate across all 13 colonies when they were trying to fight the British, right? They they had a revolution. And they had to communicate through all these 13 colonies. And that was extremely, extremely difficult, right? And they had all these different ways, you know, from the Pony Express to so on, just just to try to communicate with, with all these 13 colonies. So if they had a technology like this, how much would that increase their political organizing? Tremendously, tremendously, right? So I touched on this, about, the, but let's go into it a little bit deeper. So the causes of increased political engagement. The causes, they're diverse and include the use of social media to mobilize grassroots movements, increased awareness of political issues through traditional and alternative media sources, and the impact of demographic transition changes on the political landscape, right? Demographic changes on the political landscape. That's been talked about a lot in the media, and it, it's a really key piece in the change of increased... Uh, Political engagement, political publicity, and so on. Continuing on, you know, with the consequences of political engagement, is this bad? Is this good? It's great. It's, it's amazing. The consequences of increased political engagement, they include a more engaged and informed citizenry, increased pressure on elected officials to address more important issues. And the potential for positive policy changes. So when you go to the idea that there's increased pressure on elected officials to address important issues, that goes back to the idea of the influence of money on politicians with special interests. But then you want them to address the people. How do you get them to address the people? You stand up as part of the people, right? You have the people stand up. Show them, you know, one voice, one vote, one person, right? But when there are many people, many voices, many votes, many people, right? Maybe they can stand up to this one person, one vote, but much money, that has a lot of influence, right? And then there are examples of increased political engagement. So in recent times, there have been the Women's March, the Sunrise Movement's advocacy for action on climate change and so on. So there's been a lot of political engagement we've seen, especially in recent years which has increased the amount of engagement with our democratic institutions, right? So there's been things that have decreased because of this political engagement. So when you think about it, why did this political engagement start? Well, part of it's because the media and social media and the technologies, and then that's created an increase in political engagement. And what's so crucial to to democracy is political engagement. It's the people being engaged, right? But then what's the issue when you have these medias that are that are spreading uh, that are that are trying to gather a certain demographic, a certain group to uh, excite them, excite them, rally them. And what is the problem when you have something like that? Uh, you have pol- polarization, major polarization that causes gridlock. So there, there are the pros and cons of both sides, and it's really hard to weigh them. But it's it's an interesting nuance that we're getting through. And then when we look at the advances in voting rights in, in the past, recently, especially in the past you know, couple decades, despite the concerns about voter suppressions and access to ballots, there have been significant advances in the voter rights in recent years. So these include efforts to expand early voting and mail-in voting, automatic voter registration, and the restoration of voting rights for people with felony convictions right? And the causes of advances in voter rights, they're they are diverse again, right? So they include grassroots advocacy. And what does grassroots mean? It means the people, right? The real people getting together and forming their own coalitions, their own movements, and starting it from the bottom up where it doesn't start with the big donors, it starts with the people. And that's the sort of activism that, that I've always loved, I've always admired. There are also the ideas that Court decisions overturning restrictive voting laws have advanced voter rights. And then there's been political pressure from civil rights groups and other organizations. And then when you think about the consequences of these advances in voting rights, so they've increased access to the ballot, greater representation of marginalized communities in the political process, and they've increased confidence in the legitimacy of democratic institutions. All pros, right? Pro, pro, pro. So this is a good thing. When you have a more engaged citizenry in a democracy, you have a much stronger and much more stable democracy. Finally, we also have a much more diverse representation in government. If you look at our government today versus 10, 20 years ago, there are more women in government, more people of color, serving in elected offices of all levels of government. But it is, at the end of the day, a meritocracy. But at the end of the day, there are uh, there is more diverse representation in government. So that is, that is a big pro of democracy and our, our stability of our democratic institution here in the United States, because that shows the strength of our democracy, the amount of people that we're putting in, the amount of people that we're engaging in our democratic process. And it's such a strength. And the impact that it has on these communities and the increased trust in the democratic institutions because of this, it's great. So while there are certainly challenges facing American democracy, there are also positive developments to highlight. Such as increased political engagement, advances in voting rights, and the diverse representation that we now have in our government. By focusing on these positive developments and working to address the challenges that we face, Americans, we can work towards strengthening democratic institutions and ensuring a more equitable and more inclusive society, where we have the strongest democracy, we have the most stable democracy, we have the best democracy. And we can do that. When we have a great informed citizenry, we have a a society that is working towards progress. And I think the number one thing that we need to address, and there's so many multiple factors that go into this, is political polarization. It goes back to the media, the technology and so on. But that is the number one challenge facing American democracy today. And I hope that we can overcome this, because if we can't overcome this, this is a serious burden to our democratic systems and the legitimacy of our democratic institutions here in the United States. It really is. I was hoping to go into Iran's democracy's history today, which is particularly fascinating, with the rich tapestry of events and movements that have shaped this country over the past centuries right? And it's so interesting from the constitutional revolution of the early 20th century to the current political situation. Iran, it's been marked by a mix of democratic and authoritarian elements. And I was really hoping we'd get through this today, but I don't think we'll have enough time. Special shout out to Faye for recommending this, and we'll definitely get through it next week. And it's super interesting. So I really hope you guys tune in to listen to it. Let's now go to the Granada revolution. Today is the 44th anniversary of the Granada Revolution that took place on March 13, 1979. Today we'll be taking a closer look at the impact of the revolution on Granada's political and social landscape and exploring how the country has developed in the four decades since. So the Granada Revolution, it was a period of political and social upheaval in Granada, a small island nation in the Caribbean. It began on March 13, 1979. The revolution was led by a small, by the New Jewel Movement, the NGM, a left-wing political organization that sought to end Grenada's dependence on foreign powers and establish a socialist government. The NGM, led by Maurice Bishop, had been organizing and mobilizing support for their revolution for several years before March 13, 1979. On that day, the NGM, along with some elements of the Grenadian military, overthrew the government of. Prime Minister Eric Gehry in a bloodless coup. After taking power, the NGM established a new government with Bishop as the Prime Minister. They nationalized some industries, redistributed land, and implemented social welfare programs. The government also has close ties with other socialist countries, such as Cuba and the Soviet Union at the time. However, the revolution faced challenges and opposition from both internal and external forces. There were disagreements within the NGM about the direction of the revolution. And the government's policies were criticized by some Grenadians who felt their freedoms and economic opportunities were being restricted. In addition, the United States government viewed the Grenada revolution as a threat to its interests in the Caribbean and began to effectively undermine and destabilize the government. In 1983, the U.S. invaded Grenada, citing concerns about the safety of American medical students on the island, and they overthrew the NGM government. The Grenada government had a lasting impact on the country, both in terms of its political and social development and its relationships with other countries. To this day, it remains a controversial and debated piece in Granada's history. The Granada revolution had a complex impact on democracy in Granada. On the one hand, the revolution brought about some significant advances in democratic participation and representation, particularly in terms of political and social inclusion for marginalized groups. For example, the revolution led to the establishment of a People's Revolutionary Government, or PRG as known. That included representatives from different sectors of Grenadian society, such as farmers, workers, and women. The PRG also implemented various policies aimed at empowering and uplifting marginalized communities, such as land reform and education initiatives. However, the revolution was also criticized for its authoritarian tendencies and for curtailing civil liberties, and political freedoms. The PRG implemented strict censorship policies and cracked down on dissent, including through the use of detention and torture. The government also took control of the media and restricted the freedom of press. Furthermore, the U.S. invasion of Grenada in 1983 had a profound impact on the country's democratic development. While the PRG had been overthrown, the U.S. intervention contributed to a sense of instability and undermined trust in democratic processes. The post-revolutionary period was marked by political polarization, a word we hear too often today, isn't that right? With different factions vying for power and influence. And there were several instances of political violence and unrest. Today, Granada has a democratic system of government with regular elections and protections for civil liberties and political freedoms. However, the legacy of the Granada Revolution continues to shape the country's political and social landscape and the debates over its impact on democracy remain ongoing. I thought this was a really cool note on the 44th anniversary of the Granada Revolution that took place on March 13, 1979. I hope you guys enjoyed that little fact, that little interesting lesson. I thought it was really cool, um, this whole Granada piece. Now let's go into our current affairs. Is democracy prevailing or is it appalled this week? The first example will be in India. The structures of Indian democracy are under attack according to Congress leader Rahul Gandhi, who is currently on a tour of the United Kingdom. Gandhi alleged that there is a full-scale assault on the institutions of India and the media, institutional frameworks, judiciary, and parliament. He's saying they're all under attack. Gandhi referred to the income tax department's recent survey against against the BBC offices in New Delhi and Mumbai as an example of the suppression of voice across the country. He expressed regret that the democratic parts of the world, including the United States and Europe, have failed to notice that a large chunk of democracy has come undone. Gandhi also hit back at the government's criticism that he has maligned the country on foreign soil during his lecture at Cambridge University earlier this week because he is on tour in the United Kingdom. It appears that the structures of Indian democracy are under attack and and there's a full-scale assault on the institutions, on the foundations of Indian democracy, says Gandhi. So he alleges that the media institutional frameworks are under attack. And this is a key piece of what he, what he goes again towards saying. And he suggests that the Indian democracy is in trouble. However, it's important to note that this is just one perspective, and there may be many other factors to consider when assessing the health of democracy in India. But the attacks on the freedom of press, there have been increasing concerns about press freedom in India with journalists facing intimidation and violence from both state and non-state actors. The government has also been accused of using various laws and regulations to silence critical media outlets. Along with that, there are restrictions on civil society organizations. So civil society organizations that are critical of the government have also faced harassment and intimidation. The Government has also passed laws that place restrictions on foreign funding for NGOs, right? NGOs, non-governmental organizations. And there have also been cases where activists have been charged with sedition or other offenses for their work. And there's also the restrictions on the freedom of expression. The government has also been accused of using laws like Sedition Law and Unlawful Activities Act to stifle dissenting criticism of the government. This has led to concerns about the shrinking space for freedom of expression in the country. There are also attacks on religious and ethnic minorities. There have been increasing concerns about attacks on religious and ethnic minorities in India, with some groups facing violence and discrimination. Critics have accused the government of promoting a majoritarian agenda that is hostile to minorities. And then there's also the idea of the erosion of the institutional autonomy. There have been concerns about the autonomy of key institutions like the Judiciary and the Election Commission, with critics accusing the government of trying to undermine their independence. What does this remind remind me of? It reminds me of Israel and Mexico, right? Mexico with the, um, uh, what is it, the election commission and then Israel with the judiciary because in the judiciary in Israel, the executive branch is trying to take control of the judiciary. And then the election commission in Mexico, the executive branch is trying to take control of the uh, election commission down in Mexico. There have also been allegations of political interference in appointments to key positions in these institutions, which is, again, goes back to the idea of checks and balances. And what is our key surprise when it comes to current affairs? It's Canada. You wouldn't have expected this, but it's Canada. So according to a recent report by Morris Rosenberg, a former civil servant, Canada's federal election in 2021 saw a surge of disruptive behavior by both foreign and domestic actors. Rosenberg reviewed how Canada monitored interference during the last election and is urging the government to expand legal authorities to track and disclose interference to better cover the months leading up to an election campaign. The report suggests that Canada's democracy is under attack and changes need to be made to safeguard it. So when you go into the challenges facing Canada's democracy, there's foreign interference. So Rosenberg's report highlighted that the ongoing threat of foreign interference in Canadian elections, such as disinformation campaigns run by foreign entities to sway public opinion or influence voter behavior. This could be an attempt to undermine the election legitimacy of Canada's democratic institutions or advance foreign interests over Canadian ones. There's also domestic actors. So as mentioned earlier, the report also noted that the increase in disruptive behavior by domestic actors during the 2021 election campaign. So this includes actions like throwing gravel at political leaders, disrupting campaign events. And spreading false information online this is something that is not going on in just canada but many democratic countries around the world and such behavior can create an environment of fear and intimidation that undermines democratic participation when it goes to false information online though if if within the united states if you try to police that or within canada you try to police that until what point do you keep on policing that where you become like china Right where you where you don't have this freedom that we, we so love down here in, in the western half where it comes to the United States or when it comes to Canada. So I think it's really important to be careful and mindful of this freedom of speech and freedom of expression, because that is something we always, always, always want to protect. And we don't want to do anything to harm that. And that's really important to remember. There's also the declining trust in democratic institutions. There's been a growing sense of dissatisfaction and distrust among Canadians toward their democratic institutions, including political parties, government, and media. This can lead to reduced civic engagement and participation, and could ultimately weaken the foundations of Canada's democratic system. And then there's partisan polarization. Canada, like many other democracies, has has seen increasing polarization between political parties and their supporters, right? So this can make it harder to reach consensus and compromise on important policy issues and can lead to a breakdown in civil discourse and political discourse. Furthermore, access to information. The ability of citizens to access accurate and reliable information, is essential for a healthy democracy. However, concerns have been raised about the quality and reliability of information available to Canadians, including the prevalence of misinformation and disinformation online. And the decline of traditional media outlets that have historically provided a critical source of information for the public. What does this remind you of? We just talked about the state of democracy in the United States, and then we're looking at the state of democracy in Canada very briefly, and it reminds me a lot of the United States, right? Because you look at partisan polarization that's happening in the United States, access to information where there are concerns about the quality of information, uh, and the media and misinformation and so on. Access information again, an issue in the United States with its democratic system. Declining trust in democratic institutions again, a problem in the United States. Domestic actors, well, not maybe not as much or not as big of a problem because we didn't see this. We don't have a similar report in the United States, but there have been reports that have gone on to talk about foreign interference in United elections, United States elections. So this goes to show that there is a great similarity between the problems that great democratic uh, institutions face like Canada and the United States. This brings us back to the age-old question, is democracy prevailing or is it appalled? Overall, I'd say democracy is prevailing, even though there are some hiccups, you know, when it comes to freedom of speech, so on in India, and then in Canada, we have similar problems here in the United States when it comes to polarization, which is a key issue, and really it could threaten the legitimacy of democracy, you know, domestically within the United States. Abroad, because if democracy within the United States isn't strong, democracy abroad isn't strong. So democracy as a whole right now it's prevailing, but democracy could definitely quickly become appalled if polarization and gridlock take a hold at a much stronger level than they are right now and things aren't changed. But overall, it is prevailing and I look to see it continue to prevail and hopefully we're able to right the wrongs as democracy has always done and evolve as society evolves which is something I'm excited to see happen. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Democracy Appalled, and I'm your host, Rohan Mova. This show is all about democracy. This is Democracy Appalled, live from 1490 WWPRAM, every Monday at 5 a.m. Eastern. Catch us right here every Monday at 5 a.m. Don't miss us. If you have any questions about democracy or anything we said, send us an email at democracyappalled at gmo.com, and we'll bring that in our next week's topic. Please remember that our email is and We'll bring that in our next week's session. In next week's episode, we'll expand our understanding of democracy by understanding the current state of democracy globally, along with current events, case studies, like the Iran's democratic history, which is very interesting, and more. So tune in right here, live at 1490 wwpr every Monday at 5 a.m. Eastern. Look forward to seeing you here next week and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. This is Democracy Appalled, and I'm your host, Rohan Mova, signing out for the week.